glad you're here. Today's topic in romantic comedy conversation is about the popular yet problematic trope of the damsel in distress. Is it popular because people actually like it? I don't know. I think it's popular because it's an easy trope to do. And it's everywhere in pop culture in one way or another. Thinking of romantic comedies, you have a prostitute that's taken off the streets by a billionaire and invited to the opera. You have a young redhead stranded in Ireland that needs a ride to Dublin so she can propose to her boyfriend. And then in one of my favorite movies of all time, a young princess who is kidnapped by gilder criminals so her fiancé prince can start a war. But what is a damsel in distress, you might be asking? Again, it's a narrative archetype in which a woman finds herself in a predicament, whether it be locked away in a tower, kidnapped by a ruffian, or stranded on the side of the road, and there is an implication that she needs a man to save her. It's Cinderella needing the prince to save her from the evil stepmother. It's Sleeping Beauty needing true love's kiss to wake her up from a cursed sleep. It's just about any woman in any vicinity near or around James Bond, and apparently in almost every animated Disney movie. We're starting to see that a little differently now, which I really appreciate about Disney and some of the stories they are coming out with. But it is everywhere in pop culture, not just in movies, in TV shows, in books. It's absolutely everywhere. So why is it problematic? Because it implies that the only way a woman can survive is to find herself an attractive, intelligent, strong man who will inevitably save the day. He'll shoot the gun or beat up the bad guy or get the lid off the jar of pickles. The woman, delicate, feeble, insecure, could never do those things for herself. But here's the thing about romantic comedies and the damsel. Sometimes she's in distress, yes, but in so many instances, our damsel realizes she is just as capable or even more so than her would-be hero. For example, in Mr. Wright, starring Sam Rockwell as an assassin and Anna Kendrick as his love interest slash damsel, when kidnapped toward the end of the movie, Anna's Martha is just as efficient at defeating the bad guys and killing some as Sam's Francis. If you've not seen that one, it's pretty good. Sam Rockwell, oh, we are going to do an appreciation week for Sam Rockwell eventually. Or in Night and Day, starring Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. I know. I know, I know Tom Cruise isn't super popular, but this is this is a, actually a pretty good movie. I really like this one. Cameron's June is often in distress after being confused with being Roy's accomplice when a valuable battery is stolen. So he's constantly saving her from any number of shifty individuals, but June ends up saving Roy in the end, beating up a few bad guys and choosing the life she wants to lead. I could keep going with random examples. But I prefer to dive into today's movies, 1984's Romancing the Stone, starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner, and 1934's It Happened One Night with Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, two of my all-time favorite romantic comedies. They're so good. If you've not seen them, please watch them, please. And then we can sit down and talk about it. Because you know, I would love to sit down and talk to you about just about anything, dear listener. But Romancing the Stone, which is far superior to its sequel, Jewel of the Nile. We can have that conversation too, if you would like, if you would disagree with me. Well, it's the story about a reclusive romance author named Joan Wilder, who finds herself living out the type of adventure that she has only written about, really. Usually she stays at home with her cat, 
sobbing over her stories that she dreams up. But then she gets a call from her sister who lives in Colombia that her brother-in-law has been kidnapped, followed shortly by a surprise envelope in the mail and the arrival of a treasure map. Yes, I do love a good treasure hunt kind of story. I just went that we're getting off track, but I just went and saw Uncharted, the new movie with Mark Wahlberg and Tom Holland, uh, based on, I guess, a PlayStation video game. I was unfamiliar with that video game, but if you like Sahara or The Mummy or National Treasure, I think you would really like it. It was a lot of fun. It was just fun. If you just are in the mood for a fun movie, go see Uncharted. Highly recommend. Anyway, so against the sound advice of her editor, which appears to be about her only friend, <laughs> and all good common sense, Joan jumps on a plane and travels into the unknown to Columbia to save her sister, who has now also been kidnapped as being held ransom for this map. There's several different groups that are wanting this map. Joan is gullible, naive, and just she's a little stupid and she immediately believes a shifty looking local who ends up being one of the kidnappers zolo when he gives her wrong directions to the bus for cartagena where her sister is being held and this bus is actually about to take her deep into the countryside of colombia so joan is on this bus and she starts to question where they're headed and then she accidentally distracts the bus driver who then runs the bus into a jeep that's sitting on the side of the road the rest of the passengers kind of act like this is just a Tuesday, so they get their stuff and start walking to their destination wherever they're headed. But Joan ends up being found by Solo, and with the help of the Jeep owner, who is an exotic bird smuggler named Jack T. Colton, she escapes into the jungle. Jack agrees to help Joan get to Cartagena for $375 in traveler's checks, which Kind of doesn't seem like the greatest of rewards, but I mean, I guess if you want some money. And the two set off on their adventure. The two fight for the better part of the day. But after spending the night together in a crashed plane deep in the jungle, Joan tells Jack about her sister and shows him the treasure map. Jack, being kind of a low-level criminal himself, is all on board and suggests that they look for the treasure known as El Corazon, the heart uh, it's a giant emerald, and if they find it, they've got leverage when they finally get to Cartagena and deal with the kidnappers. But Jonah's hesitant at first, um, of course, at first. But as their relationship starts to change and she starts to develop feelings for Jack, surprise, surprise, they actually spend a romantic evening together in a nearby town where there's dancing, and her newly ignited adventurous spirit finally leads her to agree to this plan. So they... They go, you know, they go and find this diamond because our damsel who has been in distress the entire movie finally decides to live her life and not daydream about it in a romance, romance novel. So there's a great scene where they are following the treasure map. They also at one point um, meet a man that lives deep in the jungle and he, he comes off as, oh my goodness, this is going to be a bad guy, but he is like obsessed with her romance novels. And I always thought that that was a fun part of it. So they go and find the stone and then they're immediately being chased by other people. Um, everybody's coming after them solo. Danny DeVito, who's like a thief and he had found out about the map. Um, I believe some like government or military people. Uh, so there's just a lot of people coming after them, which leads to a car chase, which lands them in their car in a river that it's on its way to a waterfall. So the two jump out of the car just in time to get to safety, but they actually end up on opposite sides of the river. 
with Jack holding El Corazon. So Jack's got the jewel. Um, Joan's actually on the correct side of the river, which does remind me of the mummy again, now that I've already talked about the mummy once today, Brendan Fraser. Just a just a delight. But there's a scene when they were they get off the the boat, they jump off the ferry, and um Brendan Fraser and and the the librarian who I just completely forgot her name, which is just horrible. I can't believe I've done that because it's the best line in all of cinema. Um, when she gets drunk and declares that she is a librarian, it's genius. But Benny, the the kind of the criminal who they don't want with them, he ends up on the other side of the river and it becomes a race. So it's a lot like that. I got way off track there. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of pop culture that lives in my head, guys, and it just all kind of flows in there until until it comes out. That's just how this works. So Joan is worried that Jack somehow orchestrated this whole ordeal to get the emerald, but he promises to meet her in Cartagena with the gem to help her save her sister. So finally in Cartagena, Joan marches boldly into her meeting with the kidnappers, not really sure what she's going to do, but relieved to see her sister still alive and relatively well. And there's no sign of Jack. When the set situation really kind of escalates and it looks like neither Joan nor her sister are going to get out of alive, the white knight, Jack, the hero Joan has been writing about for years in her books, arrives to save the day. But he doesn't exactly. He helps, yeah, but Joan holds her own despite guns and hungry crocodiles. Together they save the day. Together they save her sister. And together they lose the emerald that gets eaten by a crocodile. And then Joan has to watch this man that she has fallen in love with dive into the ocean after it, and she doesn't see him again. But now she's safely back at home in New York City. She's super confident and no longer a recluse. She dresses differently. She's just She just goes strutting down the New York streets uh, dealing with catcalls. She turns her Colombian adventure into a best-selling novel, which is wonderful. And she looks happy, even if she's just kind of left wondering what happened to Jack. And it doesn't take her long to find out because then Jack comes driving down the streets of New York with a giant sailboat in tow, a dream fulfilled because he caught the crocodile and wrestled the gym out of it, I guess. I guess the poor croc didn't live because he ends up making it a pair of boots. But he's come to find Joan and whisk her away for another adventure, which will become the mediocre sequel. So yeah, Joan was a damsel in distress for a lot of the movie. But we got to see a damsel come into her own and play a confident role in her own survival. And while it looked like Jack was going to play her at one point and take the gem and run, he turned out to be a pretty stand-up guy who sailed, sort of. I don't know if he sailed there or he just got to New York City and bought a boat all the way into New York City, though, to find her. He kind of chased her in the end, and that's also kind of nice. So if you haven't seen Romancing the Stone please go see it. A few interesting tidbits. There was an uncredited change to the script in an attempt to make Joan Wilder more likable. She changed the opening scene, the writer, so that the character had a cat that she adored as opposed to being alone. And that made her more likable, I guess. So I should be super likable because I have two cats. Am I super likable? <laughs> You're still listening. So hopefully, um, Janine Epper, Kathleen Turner's stunt double during the mudslide scene. So at some point, um, as they are traipsing through the jungle, they're, it's raining and they're standing there yelling at each other. It's before they like one another and the ground gives out and they both go just kind of plummeting further into the jungle. 
her stunt double was Linda Carter's stunt double in Wonder Woman from 1975. Thought that was kind of fun. Bob Hoskins, we did have Appreciation Week about him, turned down the role of Ralph, which is the low-level kind of thief, which eventually went to Danny DeVito. Hoskins and director Robert Zemeckis would work together four years later in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which came out in 1988, and Kathleen Turner, who plays Joan Wilder, would also provide the voice of Jessica Rabbit. And the titles of some of the romantic fiction novels that Joan Wilder had written in the movie were called, are you ready for this? The Savage Secret, Love's Wicked Kiss, <laughs> Love's Wicked Kiss, The Ravagers, Passion's Lovely Lie, and my favorite, Treasures of Lust. Oh, so good. So good. But I digress. Now on to the lovely 1934 gem all of its own, we don't need an emerald, is It Happened One Night, starring Clark Gable as Peter Warren and Claudette Colbert as Ellie Andrews, an heiress who falls in love with and marries a man named King Wesley. I would like to talk about that sometime. He's not a king. His name is just King Wesley. And then she is promptly kidnapped by her own father, who wants to get the marriage annulled because he's convinced said king is just in it for his daughter's money. So Ellie literally jumps ship in Florida, Her fa- jumps off her father's boat where she's being held, and plans on traveling back to New York, New York City to reunite with, her, reunite with her husband. But this definitely becomes a fish-out-of-water movie with the heiress slumming it and completely clueless on how the world works, especially without money. Like, she, she has no money. Somehow she ends up with clothes because she jumps in in, like, a nightgown, but then all of a sudden she has clothes. I, I don't quite understand how that worked, but... I'm not going to ask too much, too many questions because I just love this movie so much. So Ellie boards a Greyhound bus, and that's where she meets Peter Warren, a down-and-out journalist who has just lost his job. He quickly realizes the payday that is sitting next to him. He's like, all right, we got this, and offers Ellie an ultimatum, which when he sees that she's kind of completely hopeless. I, and it's kind of a win-win situation. If she gives him an exclusive, he'll help her get back to Wesley. So that's option one. If she doesn't, He'll make sure her father, who is offering a reward for her return, knows where she's at. So either way, he's going to walk away with something. Ellie, of course, takes the first option and the two strike out on an adventure. They end up at a roadside hotel, which is a fascinating scene. It's almost like these little huts and then there's shared bathrooms, almost like a campground of sort. But you got to stay in a little building where they are sharing a room and They build the wall of Jericho out of a blanket to maintain privacy and safeguard Ellie's virtue. Then um, they end up hitchhiking at one point because the bus breaks down, leading to the iconic scene where Ellie schools Peter on the art of hitchhiking by hiking up her skirt and showing off her leg. And she immediately gets somebody to stop after Peter couldn't get anyone to even give him the time of day. Spoiler, this is another enemies to lovers kind of story. So at first, they sort of loathe each other. Peter sees Ellie as spoiled, and Ellie sees Peter as brash. But as they get to know one another, kind of live some life together, make their way to New York City, Ellie eventually confesses that she's in love with Peter, only a night away from their destination. So then they end up staying at another roadside motel, and when Ellie wakes up, Peter is gone, and the owners of the motel kick her out because she doesn't have any money. And she's devastated, thinking he has just deserted her, and she thought he had feelings for her as well. So she calls her dad. He agrees to let her marry Wesley and comes to pick her up. 
But Peter didn't abandon Ellie. He had gone to get money from his editor to marry Ellie because he's in love with her too. Aww. So they actually pass on the road as Peter is rushing back to the motel with the, the money to marry Ellie. She is driving by with her father on the way home to New York City. Ellie doesn't really want to marry Wesley at this point, but she thinks that Peter has betrayed her for the reward money, so she plans to go through with the second formal wedding. And on her wedding day, she finally tells her father the whole story, how she, he had helped her um, about the story that he was going to write, uh, that she had feelings for him. And then Peter shows up but refuses the reward money, just asking for the expenses he was out for their adventure. And it was like $39. He actually had to sell some stuff like his suitcase and his luggage to get gasoline in order to get them back to New York City. Mr. Andrews presses and Peter finally admits that he loves Ellie as well before kind of storming out. So as Ellie is walking down the aisle, her father tells her that Peter didn't take the money. And she leaves the gold digger at the altar. Woohoo! Then we get a scene back at the roadside motel a couple weeks later where the wall of Jericho comes tumbling down, the virtue, virtue no longer needing to be safeguarded, and Peter and Ellie are married. Oh, I love it. I love it. I think I have a soft spot because it has Clark Gable in it, and my grandpa always loved Clark Gable. Every time you'd have to do something and make up a name, he was always Clark Gable. And I just, I was like that. Um, I've, I've not done a deep dive into Clark Gable. I mean, I of course, have seen Gone with the Wind and this one, and I've seen Teacher's Pet with Doris Day, but I'm, I don't think I've seen a lot. Maybe I should do that sometime. Maybe we could do that together. Anyway, so Ellie doesn't go through quite the character development as Joan Wilder in Romancing the Stone, but you see glimpses of it during their adventure especially in the hilarious hitchhiking scene and also later at a gathering before the wedding for Ellie it's more it's more an owning of her I don't know her sexuality her femininity that's where she shows her confidence where she takes hold of her life where she doesn't just stand by and let a man speak or act for her where she's just a beautiful damsel who is not in distress I love it. You should watch it. A few interesting tidbits about this one, and I could have read all of them because they were kind of cracking me up. Clark B Gable gave the Oscar he won for his performance in this movie to a child who admired it, telling him it was the winning of the status, the statue that had matter not owning it. And the child returned the Oscar to the Gable family after Clark's death. That was nice of the kid. It happened one night, which again came out in 1934, became the first film to perform a clean sweep of the top five Academy Award categories known as the Oscar Grand Slam. So it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. This feature would later be duplicated by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which came out in 75, and The Silence of the Lambs, which came out in 1991. However, It Happened One Night is the only one not nominated in any other category, which is interesting. So while shooting the scene, we're... So they're in the roadside motel, and they're getting undressed for bed. Clark Gable, Peter Warren, gives Ellie some of his pajamas to put on. So while he's shooting the scene where he undresses, Clark Gable had trouble removing his undershirt. This is the best. Undershirt while keeping his humorous flow going, and it, it just took too long. So as a result, the undershirt was abandoned altogether. It then became cool to not wear an undershirt, which resulted in a large drop in undershirt sales around the country. Legend has it that in response, 
Some underwear manufacturers tried to sue Columbia, the studio. <laughs> when director Frank Capra asked Claudette Colbert to expose her leg for the hitchhiking scene, she initially refused. Later, after having seen the leg of her body double, she changed her mind, insisting that that is not my leg. <laughs> Clark Gable was loaned to this film by MGM as punishment for his affair with Joan Crawford. Crazy days where you could just, where you were really bought and owned by a studio and then you could be sold or lent out. That is just, it's a strange, it probably still happens, but it, you just, I don't know, it's weird to hear about. And last one, even though there were more, director Frank Capra came up with the idea about the walls of Jericho because Claudette Colbert refused to undress in front of the camera, a somewhat puzzling acting choice giving her nude milk bath scene as Empress Poppea in 1932 sign of the cross and another one in cleopatra in 1934 it was also said that i read a little bit that clark gable and claudette neither one thought this was going to go anywhere and even the studio thought that this was going to be a flop and then it was just a runaway success so this is why you you just you got to go see movies you never know what's going to be a good one and it doesn't have to be some artsy fartsy kind of thing to be a good movie i mean there's there's good things out there you need to go watch them not sure there's a moral to the story about damsels in distress, except that you should never underestimate a woman, even or especially when love is involved. But that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so we can keep going on this journey together and we can keep having these kind of conversations, uh, you know, random conversations about pop culture. And I don't really know what I'm talking about, but we still have a good time. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.